Vior. John. What's up, dude? How's it going? Thanks for coming back. Yeah. I appreciate it. There's a lot to talk about today. We're living in a crazy world, and it seems like it's getting crazier. Yes, sir. Um, how you been? I've been good. Been yeah. good. Um, very busy. I bet. And at least finally we have a little bit of, you know, certainty regarding everything through January 1st, 2023. So Sure. You know, that's probably finally not change. We, we have a little <laughs> we have some guidance. Yeah. But no, it's it's just been, you know, every day is something new. There's so many holes in, you know, how the law is written, so many employers, you know, I'm getting a lot of uh, emails from from your clients. I'm getting questions from my adjusters left and right. Nobody knows, you know, in so many areas how to move forward. And is, everybody's just trying to get back up and running. Is there like an E&O exposure for you right now? Are you scared about that at all? Um, that is definitely above my pay grade. Okay. Because that would be one of the things. <laughs> yeah. I know it has to come down from Bruce. Like, here's our positions on things. Like, do likewise. Yeah. But I would imagine because of the fluidity of the situation, it might be like dancing in some gray area. And, you know, hopefully you have a good relationship with all like your carriers. So they're not going to come back and say, hey, you told us to do this. And like, <laughs> turns out that wasn't cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, definitely with, you know, with all of our carriers, it's actually kind of interesting because, you know, to a large degree as an attorney, my job is to give them the best legal advice I possibly can. So at the same time, this is all uh, risk management. So you have certain, uh, certain insurance companies that are saying, no, you know what, we're willing to roll the dice on this. We'd rather take more of a hardline approach. Um, and our business model is, um, you know, kind of uh, deny things first, and then we'll see how it turns out. And then conversely, there are others who are like, no, we'd rather avoid penalty situations at every possible route. You know, we don't want to be audited by the state. Uh, we like to kind of play it safer. Um, and, uh, you know, as far as who is right and who's wrong, um, that's every risk management. Thoughts, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, as you can see, when you, you know, shop around to different insurers, uh, that's why they give you different rates. Um, so, uh, you know, but at the same time, uh, the ones that, uh, we, you know, work well with are the ones that, you know, take what we recommend, uh, you know, to a large degree. And then generally it's, Hey, do you want a, B or C? These are kind of the risks involved in any of these three routes. And then I recommend, you know, this one, but you know, we're on board for helping you out if you want to go, you know, the other two, sure. that kind of thing. So when you're talking about you being really busy, is that predominantly because of the changes that happen in legislation or is this more because you guys are doing like kicking ass and bringing more clients on or a mix uh, of both? Yeah, a lot of, a lot of the above. Um, so as far as COVID claims are concerned, um, most COVID claims are very standard in that they're being handled in house by your adjusters because essentially it's just time loss. That's, sure. that's pretty much what the you know uh, impact is, but we're getting some COVID death claims. Uh, we're getting some claims where the COVID is alleged to have aggravated some underlying conditions. So you know people that are in those higher risk factors, uh, including obesity, diabetes, uh, people who are smokers or already have respiratory problems. Those are the more complicated cases that we are getting through our office. And then on the flip side. It's our favorite thing to talk about, John. It's post-termination claims. Woo! <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's uh, the COVID layoffs have all come in. Um, the ones that are temporary, we're rarely seeing claims filed. But sure. essentially, once those employees get that final notice from the employer saying, hey, you know, it's just, it's not looking good. Uh, we're probably not going to take you back. Uh, many of them are running out to get attorneys. And, you know, that's, that's what we're doing. So we're Even in our unemployment? Um, though, even if they're collecting unemployment, 
uh, they can't double dip on disability, but sure. there's nothing stopping them from filing, uh, filing claims. Wow. Well, yeah, that's nonsense. <laughs> so, you know, I've been getting a All lot of All right, so this is going to keep happening. Layout. This seems yes. like it's going to be a persistent issue that folks are going to have to deal with. Absolutely. All right, so let's just get into the weeds a little bit. There's been some stuff that's happened recently um, in the past, you know, few weeks. But um, I want to go back to when this first came out. We first had you on the podcast. Maybe it was the second one. When COVID just hit, there was a presumption of industrial um, that has now been codified. So can you walk through what that actually looks like and what that means for our clients? Yeah. So um, originally, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom uh, had passed uh, an, an emergency executive order. And like all emergency orders, uh, you know, it left a lot to be desired. But, you know, everybody was working off the seat of their pants. And uh, that has now been codified, like you said, in SB 1159, uh, which is now the law and has been signed by Gavin Newsom and passed by both houses. So that is the law of the land moving forward regarding COVID legislation through January 1st, 2023. And as far as that prior executive order is concerned, it essentially enshrined it with some minor tweaks. Uh, so I'm not going to get into the weeds on exactly what those tweaks were since, you know, those, it only affected claims through July, uh, you know, 5th, 2020. So we're already three months out. Those claims are essentially being handled by the adjusters one way or another. Um, and it's really, you know, not a super concern. There's just been nine clients. issues. Is it's already it's more a matter it's of what's done is done. Exactly. Okay. So okay. mostly, you know, we just kind of left it in place with some minor uh, clarifications and guidance on what type of testing needed to be done, who needed to do it, et cetera. Um, but as far as moving forward, the parts that we care about is part two a little bit. Um, part two uh, is discussing um, more of those uh, first line workers. And then part three is where I want to spend the bulk of our time because that's what's going to affect, you know, 95, 98% of employers, those people who, you know, aren't employing first responders. Sure. So let's talk about that list of first responders. Like that's relatively broad and we don't want to get in the weeds on like what that might or might not exclude. But those first responders can be firefighters, police officers, frontline workers at the health is it, would that be anybody in a hospital for the most part? Yeah. So, it, you know, um, maybe excluding administration, but even then I feel like there's a kind of a, an exposure there. Yeah. It's, it's uh they, they really did try to draw a line. Um, so whereas, uh, whereas the original executive order was just Thor throwing his hammer, you know, and hitting everybody indiscriminately, sure. <laughs> um, this, you know, th this new, uh, legislation is try to demarcate um, even medical professionals. So essentially, it's any medical professional that is directly working or exposed to COVID-19 patients, they are now entitled to this 30-day presumption that we discussed um, at the last podcast. Um, and that would also include expressly states stuff like custodial workers. So if you have somebody cleaning, you know, trash cans in a patient's room and that patient is, you know, in the COVID unit and that patient has tested positive for COVID within 14 days, uh, then that hospital worker is entitled to the presumption. If, you know, somebody's bringing uh, the food, uh, you know, those food trays. So anytime somebody working in the medical profession, essentially, and they are dealing directly with COVID patients, they're going to be entitled to that presumption. On the flip side, let's say you have an ophthalmologist 
Well, he's working inside Kaiser, but he never goes near a COVID patient. Um, he's not going to be entitled to that presumption. You have custodial staff who are, you know, just working around the rest of the hospital. Um, unless they're going into the COVID units, unless they're working directly uh, with uh, COVID patients, uh, they don't get the presumption and they go into this third category we're going to discuss, which is, you know, a claim just like everybody else. Gotcha. Yeah. Do you want to move on to that third part? Let's do it because okay. um, this is this is the heavy lifting, and uh, we're going to talk uh, a little bit about how it affects the employers and what it's going to do to how the claims are administered. But I want to spend a lot of time on the back end talking about these new reporting requirements that is now enshrined, and this is a reporting requirement for employers and what they have to do when they find out about a COVID claim. So I want to spend most of our time there. But before I do, um, let's kind of talk about some of this, uh, the regulatory framework, which will explain why uh, this reporting requirement was instituted. Let's do it. So the law essentially is stating that COVID claims are no longer subject to the presumption unless there's this new uh, new category of outbreak established. So they're saying, look, if somebody gets COVID and they happen to have performed work at the workplace within 14 days, then we are no longer just automatically going to give them that special status because who knows, maybe they got it at the supermarket. Maybe they got it, you know, going to, to see, uh, you know, their, their, their friends or, you know, family, et cetera. So we don't know what they're doing in their off, off time. So the presumption is now no longer an across the board presumption. Instead, you're only going to get that presumption when there is an outbreak. And an outbreak is going to be determined by the number of people who have tested positive for COVID at your place of, you know, specific place of employment, and also dependent on how many employees you have. Got it. So that standard is one as a baseline. Right off the bat, you have to have five or more. So if we're talking about your local uh, yogurt shop, you know, what do they have? Two, three employees there, Jamba Juice. Um, you know, so these employers that have under five employees, automatically no presumption. They are subject to the exact same standard comp rule. So if somebody gets COVID at one of these places and they want to file a claim, fantastic. You just send it to your insurance adjuster. 90 days. Um, 90 days, exactly. Everything regular. Okay. On the flip side. Can I ask a dumb question? Always. Better than anyone. <laughs> hey, so in regards to uh, the amount of employees, so let's use that yogurt job, um, it would be the amount of employees working at a specific time or the amount of W-2s that you have on the books? Um, great question, John, and Thanks. here's why. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's because the law doesn't say. Uh, you know, the, this law, just like others, so many holes. So what we as defense attorneys are trying to do and as, uh, you know, generally what judges are trying to do, we're always trying to interpret what the legislature meant to do. And we want to find reasonable outcomes. So it would be ridiculous to just go by W-2s. Because let's say, uh, you know, uh, let's, let's have uh, Jackson. And Jackson owns uh, 30 different yogurt shops across California. Well, if every single one of those yogurt shops has only four workers working there, and suddenly you're going to hold him to the standard of, oh, yeah, well, you have more than five employees total, even though, you know, five or more aren't being exposed to each other at any given time. That would be silly. So it um, would be silly. <laughs> but I, <laughs> yeah. 
so yeah, so we're we're going we're going to operate under the assumption that the legislature isn't being silly. Sure. Um, and yeah, so your question is basically correct that we're going we're assuming that it is uh, location specific as the five or more, even if technically you have more employees. So, but let me give you an example. Um, let's say you have three factories, uh, warehouses, how about, let's call them three warehouses. So you're doing shipping and receiving and you have three warehouses. If those three warehouses, let's say have four employees each and they're all in a line. Well, if technically these three warehouses are completely standalone and they operate with different customers and there is no interaction and movement across, let's say these three separate buildings, um, I would argue that maybe it doesn't apply to those three buildings because they are essentially separate places of business. Sure. But on the flip side, uh, if you have a situation where employees are going to and from the various locations, common lunchroom between the three facilities, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Especially if they're shared places or, you know, maybe they have to go to the multiple job sites. We'll discuss that. That would now start to count toward this, you know, total number that we're discussing. So, so the magic number is five over five employees. Exactly. Got so it. you got to have five employees as a baseline. Then the next category of employer is employers that have anywhere from five to a hundred. So if you have five to a hundred employees, um, an outbreak will have occurred when you have four or more positive COVID tests um, within a 14 day period, a single 14 day period. Okay. So, and so essentially uh, another thing that isn't addressed by the code where we're just, you know, inserting ourselves and doing our best is on what is that date? So the date that we're going to assume is most reasonable is the date that the COVID test was collected as opposed to the date when you got the result back. That because makes sense. Exactly. It's what we know from the time you took the test, it was 14 days before that when you might've been exposed and if it was more than that, then it wouldn't be. And, you know, some POCs are taking longer to process than others. Uh, so to clarify, it's from the date of the test sample taken, four or more employees. Now, once you have four employees that get exposed to COVID, regardless of where it was, that's when that presumption is going to kick in. Got it. And once that presumption kicks in, uh, the legislature did us a small favor by giving us 45 days instead of 30 um, so the 30 day is still going to apply to all the frontline workers like we discussed, all those people that we would expect to get COVID. But for the rest of us, um, it's going to be that 45 day period. Now, the next category is 101 plus. So the 101 plus, uh, what they did is they said, okay, now we're going to do a 4% standard. Mm. So if within 14 day, any given 14 day period, uh, if 4% of your workforce tested positive for coded, then now there is an outbreak considered and everybody's going to get that presumption. Nonsense. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so malarkey. Yeah. So we're horse pucky. So a lot of clients out there that are running operations with three to 500 employees doesn't take a lot of folks to contract that to, you know, demon outbreak, which is now putting your loss runs at serious jeopardy of, you know, turning your loss ratio from, you know, potentially 30% to over a hundred percent. And that can screw up the underwriting. So as an employer listening to this, obviously, um, 
most of our clients are taking measures to protect their employees um, and have a safe place to work, making the proper social distancing, sanitation. Um, how much does that, or if any, does that weigh into like presuming they got this at work? Yeah. Right. Is that even taken into account? Um, it is. Okay. So, uh, once again, the legislature uh, did throw us a small bone here, and it codifies the importance of allowing the employer to rebut uh, that, you know, the presumption by establishing exactly what those procedures were, um, how much uh, precautions were taken to help their employees from getting COVID. So, for example, um, I was actually, you know, down at a, one of your employee, uh, one of your employer's places of business, and I looked around every every 20 feet there was a giant jug of hand sanitizer um all around posted there were the six feet uh you know apart rules uh i even saw tape around all the workstations and those were all six feet uh the employee uh lunch areas there were little uh tapes uh you know kind of squares in front of the tables where you know kind of demarcating where people could sit six feet apart um when we walked in, uh, somebody was wearing a mask, took my temperature before I walked onto the premises. So it's like all those things, if you know you have that employer, uh, that's that a case to me is like, okay, I don't, you know, this is something that I'm really gonna wanna investigate and maybe, maybe we deny this one. Maybe we say no, it's, you know, considering the fact that, uh, you know, the employer took all these precautions, uh, we don't think you got it at work, even though this presumption would apply. So I know what employer you're talking about. Would you give them an A in regards to doing the appropriate steps to give you guys an opportunity to deny a claim? Yeah, I, you know, and I mean, uh, there, was a, there was also, uh, you know, masks on offer. Uh, there were uh, gloves being used. Um, people weren't using the face shields. Uh, since there were, you know, hundreds of workers, so that's mm -hmm. just uh, <laughs> not feasible. But regardless, you know, all of these factors are definitely going to help. And then on the flip side, if you have an employer where, uh, you know, everybody's just encouraged to stay six feet apart, but there aren't signs everywhere, there's one jug of hand sanitizer only when you walk in. Uh, if I ask, hey, has anybody been written up for not following COVID procedure? When I hear no, that's kind of a bad thing because you have to assume employees, you know, kind of need some reminders and make some examples before people start falling into line. Well, nobody violated COVID procedure. Okay. So that's a good <laughs> little trick, yeah. right? So like, Hey, let's write some people up for sure. Right. A thousand percent. Okay. Um, that's going to be a big one. Um, hey, good information. <laughs> if you have people, even if they're doing everything right, write them up. Um, another thing is, you know, hold a COVID presentation, talk about it and, you know, offer out uh, maybe pamphlets or something. But the point and is have every single employee sign that they exactly. went through that, formalize a safety program, formalize a COVID safety program specifically all that thousand percent. Wow. So excited. We're getting down to business. It really <laughs> seems like an efficient way to conduct ourselves. Yeah. And, you know, and we've kind of talked about this before that, you know, that concept of nobody wants to be oppositional with their employees. Managers don't like to be, you know, hard asses. Why don't we say, but you know, there doesn't necessarily need to be, uh, you know, you're going to be fired level of punishment for this write up, but it's just more a matter of, I have a paper trail demonstrating that this employer is like, Hey, look, uh, your first COVID violation, nothing happens. Second COVID violation, um, okay, now you're really on notice. Third COVID violation, one day suspension, no pay. You know, like, that's not the end of the world. So not the same, like, 
constructive discharge you'd have with other violations. Yeah. So you're allowed to have different, like, these are COVID violations, <laughs> and these are, like, serious and willful violations that you shouldn't be doing in our business. I mean, look, at the same time, like, COVID's scary. I mean, I know that, you know, we're finally getting more and more statistics, and exactly how contagious this is, uh, is, you know, it's not nearly as bad as we thought it was. But regardless, there are a lot of people that are concerned. A lot of people, like, you know, like we said, who, you know, do have the underlying diabetes, do have those kind of risk factors. So, um, you know, each individual employer kind of, of course, you know, you decide how you want to govern and police your employees. But uh, what's more important for us is just demonstration that you are enforcing uh, this, you know, th this level of safety to ensure that, you know, you're doing everything you can to mitigate a potential outbreak at your place of employment. Got it. That makes sense. I think that's super important. I really do. I think it's one of those things that, like, you're on the hook. If you don't do it right, like, sorry. Like it's one of the things the government's going to come down on you. What kind of fines are associated with this too? Um, so let me let me get to that in a second. Okay. But they're, uh, so essentially the fines are, have now been codified and they are tied to the reporting requirements of the employer. Got it. So um, right off the bat, essentially there's very little guidance on these fines. All we know is that you can be assessed a fine up to 10 grand for intentionally misleading or failing to comply uh, with these reporting requirements and reporting to your claims adjuster. So it's one of those situations where once the report is made to the adjuster, you kind of hand the baton over and then it's out of your hands. Sure. But the employer needs to follow these rules and needs to report these claims in the fashion that I'm about to discuss. Otherwise, the labor commissioner uh, can uh, come in and you know start, start slapping out some heavy some, fines. Some hefty fines. Okay, so... Maybe before we jump into that, yeah. um, I guess I have some questions in regards to how, what kind of defense that you guys could present for our employers. So obviously, if the um, employers are demonstrably showing that they've done whatever they can to enforce their COVID policies, make sure they have a safe work environment. Um, even then, what if like employees are being knuckleheads on the weekend and being irresponsible and contract it somewhere else and we have like social media evidence so that's one of the things mm -hmm. that we do at whiteboard is like we want to make sure that we're trying to catch fraud so we'll monitor social media and if we see someone at a quinceanera like could that be a reasonable defense absolutely and once again the legislature codified that for us so on the flip side of overcoming the presumption and what the employer did they expressly acknowledge that when we're trying to overcome that presumption we are allowed to establish what their own habits were, what they were doing on their own time. So if we can show that they're, like you said, going to parties, uh, they're going uh, out to uh, their intramural paintball league. Um, so you know, sick. I don't know what they're doing on their weekends. I don't know what paintball spots are open, but yeah. um, you know, definitely that's all relevant. Social media stuff, absolutely. The only thing I will caution employers to do is there is uh, some case law that came out you can't friend your employer just to get access to their Facebook or their social media. So, what if you want to be friends with them? If you're if you're if you're friends already, 
um, then that's fine. And if there's that's so vague, <laughs> that's super vague. But you can't essentially like you can't friend them specifically for the purpose of trying to see what they were up to that weekend to try to overcome that uh, presumption because that could be an invasion of privacy. So so interesting. Don't you have to accept a friendship? Wouldn't that be like an invitation? Yeah, it's what. Hey, can we be friends? And then you have to say, Yeah, we're friends. Like that's what that is. Yes, you have to accept. That's nonsense. But, you know. Okay. <laughs> you have to prove that you really have a personal yeah, interest in this exactly. person. No, I wanted to hear about your, you know, your Furby collection. That's, yeah. that's really what this was about. You know, just I can't imagine that toys. conversation. <laughs> like every someone on the other side's like, no, you have to really be friends with them. Oh, really? Okay. Let's move on. I'm gonna get frustrated with the way. <laughs> you know, I don't even think them. you've seen The Office. I know that was one of our shared interests. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so awesome. Um you were saying so yeah so basically yeah so one of the two things we're going to use to overcome that presumption is what were the, what was the employee up to and what was the employer doing so let's move on to this report requirement because this is this is the big this is the big deal here and what the new requirements are is the employer has to report four pieces of information every single time they find out about a covid diagnosis now i want to clarify that this is whether or not your employer is claiming, sorry, your employee is claiming they got it at work or not. Either way, you have to report it, but it does make a difference on what you're going to report depending on what the employee says. Got it. So let's start with the scenario where the employee claims they got it at work. And once again, as we know with workers' comp in general, all you got to do is claim. Sure. And it's called a claim form for a reason. <laughs> yeah. But... In this scenario, you have an employer, an employee, he comes to you on Monday and says, hey, uh, I was starting to feel a little sick on Friday. Saturday, I went and got my COVID test. Yesterday, I got back my results. I'm positive. Fantastic. So what does the employer have to do? One, oh, and he's saying, I got it at work. That's important. So the employer first, you have to contact your insurance adjuster within or administrator within three days. So you have three days to report this and the method of delivery as any, um, but it does have to be in writing. So you have to either contact them by email, by fax, or by mail. Not by you text? Know. You know what, it doesn't say text, but if you want to screenshot that and prove later on that you texted, um, I'd have to check again, but maybe. Yeah. Or it should be enough. I mean, if yeah, email's enough, so. text should be Why not? Uh, solid. And you know, I mean, I know I text uh, with my adjusters that I'm super close oh, with regularly. Yeah, so. <laughs> Employer employees text uh, like that for yeah, sure. Yeah. Mainly because we want to talk about the office and yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so first off the bat, you're gonna text them or uh, email them, <laughs> etc. <laughs> Look what you got me doing. <laughs> yeah, sorry, dude. It's definitely text. Only yeah, text. Yeah. Uh, brought to you by Verizon. Thank you. Yeah, nice. <laughs> so you have to tell them their, their, you know, the name of the employee. The next one is you have to tell them the date that they tested positive. And once again, like we said, this is the date the specimen was collected, not the date they found out. Uh, and the reason is because we're assuming that that 14 day period that we're trying to figure out, that's gonna be whether or not, you know, ex-employees tested positive based on testing date. Sure. Uh, you know, during that two week period. So you have to tell them that number three is a tough one. Number three is you have to tell them all of the places where they worked during the 14 days leading up to their uh, test, uh, their positive test. 
So for most people, they're going to the same place every single day, working at the same station. That's easy. Where it gets a little weird is what is a specific place of business? Yeah. What are the number of places? So if we're talking about maybe a delivery driver who is reporting to four different warehouses, I would definitely say that, yeah, if he's picking up shipments at four different warehouses, all four of those warehouses would need to be listed as the locations where he worked. Got it. What about folks that are potentially working in a manufacturing plant and they're rotating machines, something like that, so a different part of the same building? Um, if it's under, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm making this up as I go, but why don't we call this the one roof theory, right? Okay. So essentially if you're under one roof, if you're in one building, if people are going from part to part, then it's, it's kind of one fluid exposure. Then that's, that's one place of business. Okay. That makes sense. Um, but once again, you know, if you're, if you're at a place where it's, even if it's a single campus, but you know, people don't interact with each other. Maybe it's a defense contractor and, you know, you, you have, because security clearance, you can't go uh, to certain portions of the building and the employees never talk to each other and they don't interact. Okay. Maybe that's, that's separate. You don't need to list, um, you know, any other location where it can get a little, uh, squirrely would be potentially, like I said, delivery drivers. So I can say, uh, in the Amazon model, let's say, uh, we work with Amazon, they're one of our clients and those delivery drivers, they go to a warehouse, they're collecting all their shipment. Well, when they come to my house, if the gates open, they leave it at my doorstep. If the gates close, they just throw it over the fence. Hopefully nothing, nothing breaks, (laughs) but either way, they never talked to me. They never interacted with me. That doesn't sound like a specific place of employment to me. So you don't need to list as the employer, all 150 delivery addresses where they made their deliveries. Um, but on the flip side, like I said, let's say maybe it's, uh, it's a guy who's picking up from multiple locations, or maybe it's an employee who's rotating, you know, different factories. He's working at different locations each day. Well, you have to do that 14 day, uh, you know, investigation, essentially that sure. backtracks. So more work for the employer, That's but a it ton. behooves you to keep track. You have that to would be, that'd track. be so difficult for most employers. I don't even understand how you'd be compliant with that. Like, unless you're literally having some, like, geotagging, like, in regards to, like, your payroll system. Like, I don't know how you keep track of something like that. Well, you want to, not a funny story, a scary story. Um, I got a friend working for the UC system, and they are advising their employees, this is voluntary, but we're asking that you install this app uh, imported from, I don't know, Japan, Korea, one of these places that does these types of tracking and it's specifically, Hey, if anybody contracts COVID and you were, you were within because works out Bluetooth. So anybody that pinged you within 14 days, we're going to send you notification. But she was asking, can I download this? I feel like it's important for me to have this too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. We should all get it. Let's everybody get on this one. (laughs) Go ahead. Uh, I, I could hear your eye roll from here. Dude. It's so scary. That is scary. That's super freaky. Let's stay on task. I'm sorry. Yeah, I do. That. Um, okay. I told her she did not need to uh, yeah. handle that application. Your employer can't force you, at least so far. Um, moving right along. Yeah, give but, it a second. Yeah, um, but okay. So that's part three. You got to say where they worked within fourteen days. Now, here's the equally onerous portion of it. Is number four. You then have to send a report of how many employees worked at every single location within 45 days preceding that positive test. 
how are people running businesses? Like that seems <laughs> so crazy. That's a lot of work. Yeah. That's a ton of work. Well, so, you know, so sorry. is no, no, there, no. Like, let me clarify. Actually, no, I said it wrong. It's not that you need to send them all 45 days. It's that you need to send them the date and the, or actually you don't send the date, but you basically need to report the highest number of employees that worked at all of those locations within 45 so days. So you don't have to actually list out the names. It would just be given the numbers of employees working. Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. You definitely do, yeah, for savings, uh, uh, okay. privacy reasons, you're not reporting names. It's just what is the number of employees at each location? Okay, that's a little bit easier. Yeah. Still, a lot yeah. of work. Like, what kind of compliance, like, cost in regards to if, if you don't, like, hey, I don't know exactly where you worked the last 14 days, what happens then? Uh, that's up to how much the labor commissioner wants to charge you. Really? Uh, and, you know, and if it's me, um, I'm just going to go back on a payroll. And if I, you know, if my payroll is only by week, you want to err on the side of caution. You sure. want to err on the side of, I'm going to assume every single person worked every single day because you don't want to underreport. That's where you get into a penalty situation. Yeah. So, that you makes know, sense. Err, on the, err on the high side of the number of employees uh, worked per day. But see, what's interesting about this is on the flip side, that could actually be problematic because the higher number of employees that worked over that hundred mark, mm-hmm. now we're trying to get to that 4%. Four per, yeah. So if you have over a hundred employees, maybe you report, maybe you under report, you know, you err on the side of caution, there being less employees to prevent that up. Outbreak status? Uh, no, because then theoretically, okay, well, if you're saying that you had, you know, the highest day was, I don't know, a thousand employees, let's say, mm-hmm. but really there were only 800. Well, then on that day, uh, if there were only 800 at your highest day, 30. and not a thousand, then 4% of 800 would be a smaller number than 4% of a thousand. Got it. So you definitely don't want to over report. So just hit it on the head. <laughs> okay. Yeah. That sounds easy. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and then if that. You still have to like make a product or a service and like turn a profit, right? Wait, these As are businesses? Okay. Just want to make sure. Okay. Keep going. <laughs> so. Okay. So that is the new normal moving forward. July 17th, or sorry, September 17th, 2020, when this went into effect. So for every single employee beginning on September 17th, moving forward until January 1st, 2023, this is what you do. You report the name of the employee, if they're saying was industrial, you're reporting all the places where they worked, uh, or sorry, two is you report the day of the test when they tested positive, three, you report all the places where they worked within 14 days, Four, you report the highest number of employees at uh, each specific location where they worked. Um, On the flip side, for claims and COVID tests that go back to 7-6, so July 6th through September 16th, if you recall, the governor's order expired July 5th. So we've been operating in this limbo. So for that period of just... July 6, 2020 through September 16, 2020, you need to go back and you need to now report to your insurance adjuster all of those four data points that we just discussed before October 29th, 2020, theoretically, after which you may be subject to a penalty 
Um, I wouldn't be as concerned just because this just got passed, but essentially you have about two weeks to get all that data together. And the caveat is regarding that number four about that highest number of employees in 45 days, just for this July 6th through September 16th, they just want the highest number regardless. So they're not doing the 45 day, they're just doing the whole period. The whole period. Whole period, what was the highest number? And then beginning on September 17th, moving forward, that's when we're doing, you know, 45 days back only. Beautiful, <laughs> simple, <laughs> elegant solution to this problem. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's, uh, that's what the uh, governor and the legislature has now mandated for every employer moving forward as if you didn't have enough on your plate. This is what you have to do moving forward. But like I said, all you have to do is at least provide this information. And then now the burden switches to the adjuster to do all the calculations about how many employees tested positive within how many days, if the presumption applies, if it doesn't, how many days do I have to investigate, et cetera. You have enough on your plate, just handle this reporting and the adjuster will handle the rest. That is simple. That is good advice right there. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a ton, man. That's, that's encouraging that you and your firm are so well versed in the law and have done the due diligence and we're so thankful we have you on the team to do all this because it is like we obviously have thousands of other claims outside of covid that we're managing <laughs> yeah. and doing that so it's it's really great to have you guys as a resource and it's really great to have you on representing our clients you yeah. know that's awesome man it's, so i appreciate it it's our pleasure um with that said this is a little bit of nonsense. Do you see um, any relief in regards to, you said this goes till 2023? Yeah, January 1st, 2023 is when it expires unless it's extended in any capacity. Extended, do you see it ever being amended to be like, hey, this is, we're no longer going to do this? Um, you know what? I, I, I think now we're getting more into the realm of, you know, where is this vaccine coming in? Sure. And that's, that's going to be, I would argue, the single most important, uh, you know, moment in history is when we start getting rolled out of those vaccines and sure. everything is going to be subject to if and when. So if that vaccine rollout goes well and my personal guesstimations, my crystal ball, um, I'm hoping we start to see a major rollout in maybe September or so of next year. So yeah. I'm assuming we got about another year, um, you know, to where everybody has access to it. Exactly. Well, I mean, everybody's a strong word where, you know, now your company is able to kind of bring in a nurse and, you know, do what they used to do with the flu vaccine. So, you know, they're going to start. Yeah, out we to still everybody. do that. Yeah. Um, so if that happens and yeah, we have, you know, 50 percent vaccination rates by mid 2022, um, I could see a good argument for not extending this. And at that point, you know, as long as your employer uh, maybe is offering the vaccine if you voluntarily decline it now you're back in the bus with you know the the 90 day rules sure uh, you know the the 90 day standard um but if yeah i know if, if you got your vaccine and then you still get covid um maybe there'll be something for that because we don't know how for sure there know, will be yeah efficacy is going to be okay now you can sit up front and you can get your presumption whatever yeah but um it's it's definitely going to be interesting um if i could kind of ask you because this is something that you know, me on my end, uh, doing the litigation side, we don't, uh, we're not as involved 
with the premiums. We're not as involved with, you know, the X mods, which is where I come to you sure. uh, to answer a lot of the questions that I get from, you know, many people on my end. So uh, are these, has there been any additional guidance by the insurance commissioner on what's happening COVID wise? So every insurance company has taken this in stride. And so kind of like how there's a presumption uh, for first responders, um, because of that, there's obviously increased risk for the insurance companies to take on. And the actuaries are saying that this is going to cost now more money. So for folks on the front line, their base rates are going to go up because they're incurring a greater risk. Um, for other adjacent companies, so for like home health care, um, folks that like probably wouldn't be on that first responders list, but still have an increased risk of contracting COVID, rates are going to go up there too. So we've been in a soft market, which is essentially year over year decreases in rates for insurance for, I think, for the past decade. So it was like over, yeah, so right as long as I've been in this industry, and I think it's about to turn around. And I don't, th like, I think this is going to exacerbate it. So I think insurance premiums across the board are going to go up. We've already seen it in the auto market, and this is just a, another catalyst um, to get to the um, work comp market that's going to take an increase. In regards to the X mods, um, none of the COVID claims impact our clients X mods. That doesn't mean that they're not going to impact your premiums because the, the underwriters are still going to take into account the losses compared to the premium that they're taking in. So while it won't impact you um, in a mathematical way, where they just multiply your base rates by your X mod, yeah. it is going to skew the loss ratio, I would imagine. And if you have a good agent, like they should be explaining what you guys have done to demonstrably show that like COVID is going to be as non-issue as possible at this place because we are doing all the appropriate, you know, social distancing as well as you know, all the steps that businesses should be taking to protect their employees. Um, so to answer your question around about why it's going to be a yes, I don't think it's going to be as impactful as, you know, as most other claims. Well, you know what, then let me uh, quickly uh, jump in on one extra thing that I did forget. Sure. Um, which is, you know, because once again, this does go into more of the administration aspect. And this is what, you know, your claims administrator is here for. It's what your insurance is here for. But as far as the time loss that these employees, uh, you know, may be entitled to on accepted claims or claims mm -hmm. where they're not timely denied, uh, depending on what time frame we're dealing with. Um, once again, we have now codified the fact that if you have uh, specific, uh, I'm sorry, sick pay, or it's any of those um, additional COVID-related uh, leave acts which your business is subject to, then those do those benefits need to be exhausted before the First. insurance company starts paying. Okay, so really quick question: So yeah. when you say sick leave, does that include PTO? It has to be, and once. Like, Nobody's litigated this yet, but if you look at the express language of the code, it says specifically for, you know, in response to COVID. So arguably, if the employer said, hey, if you end up getting COVID, we're giving you a week of COVID PTO in anticipation of maybe you getting COVID, then probably. But if it's just standard PTO, um, we thought that maybe when the governor's order, because it had kind of been similarly worded, we were like, oh, it has to be everything. Well, no, it seems like the legislature was like specific in that it has to be, no, it has to be COVID related. There's a We're ton of companies that don't outline like PTO compared to sick time. Like that is the more popular thing to do because it's safer to do it that way. 
then and so know, there might mean you be a restructuring of how you do your PTO and sick maybe leave. or you know or you just say you know I'm just going to allow my insurance uh, to to cover any COVID related losses uh, you know or, or which is what we're recommending. Whiteboard as a whole, we're recommending the insurance company take on that burden. He is John, and he supports this message. Yeah, we're out. Um, <laughs> one more thing, Lior. Um, in regards to your role here, um, dealing with our clients and their mm -hmm. claims, um, what kind of interaction are you seeing? Cause have you had any of our clients come with COVID claims? Has that happened yet? Um, I have not had a whiteboard COVID claim yet, but I do get a lot of uh, email inquiries, whether forwarded, uh, you know, from, from from your claims handlers or just, you know, direct to me asking questions, uh, okay. particularly about SB 1159. Um, but I, I definitely want to mention, uh, you know, you can definitely throw up my, uh, my card. Um, I'm always available if you do have any questions about, you know, how to mitigate exposure or have any questions about your current comp claims, uh, COVID-19, uh, definitely please feel free to give me a call or shoot me an email and I'll try to make some time. That's awesome, man. I really appreciate it. Um, one more thing I want to do, um, which I think is going to be really important, is there is a lot of information here. Um, we went over a brief cursory <laughs> overview of what it was, but I yeah. do think um, a lot of employers are going to want to know the nuts and bolts of what this legislation is, what this means for them, and what they can do to help protect their business and their employees. Um, so you and I have talked about doing a webinar that yeah. I hopefully will be live, and so we can actually have folks call in, ask you or potentially Bruce any questions, yeah. record that so we can actually send that out. So um, that is going to be coming down in the next, like, two to three weeks. Um, so I'll be looking out for that. Hey, everyone. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. I just wanted to provide a little bit more clarification in case it wasn't clear during my discussion with John. Uh, namely, the employer requirements regarding reporting COVID-19 positive tests both applies for employees that are either claiming that it's an industrial cause or non-industrial cause. So to clarify, when there is a positive COVID test or you're informed by an employee that they have a positive COVID test, the employer has the following obligations. First, they, of course, within three days have to provide the claims adjuster with the fact that there was a positive test. Now, where the difference comes in is if the employee is claiming that either they got it at work or they are alleging they got it at work without substantiation, that is enough to require the employer to provide the name of the uh, employee. Conversely, if the employee either doesn't know where they got the infection or they know they got it from outside work, that infection needs to be reported to the claims adjuster so they can determine that outbreak criteria, but you don't need to provide their name. So you don't identify the employee who tested positive unless either they are claiming that is industrial or you know that they got it at the workplace. Then of course, you're gonna provide the date that the employee tested positive, the address of all the places where they worked within the 14 day period preceding the positive test, and finally, the highest number of employees who reported to work at each of these locations in the 45 days preceding uh, the, the positive test.
So I hope that clarified everything, but uh, there is clearly a lot going on, many moving parts. So if you have any questions, please don't hesitate to contact me or my firm, Alberta McKenzie, and you can always reach me by email at lmakover at albmac.com. That's lmakover at albmac.com. Thank you and wish you all well. Good luck. Lior, thank you, man. I really appreciate the time. I really appreciate your diligence going over all this. Um, I know Bruce did a ton, too. It looks like he did the whole thing. Um, But you guys' understanding um, is infinitely valuable. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me, John. Namaste. Sweet, dude. Namaste. Thanks, guys. Talk to you next week.